Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 30th, 2010, and my guest is Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Richard, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's a pleasure to be here. Our topic for today is the modest one of the state of the world, but I'm sure we'll narrow it and focus it a bit. In particular, I want to get your thoughts on what do you think is happening um, that is troubling in the economy and in the wider nexus between politics and legislation, what we might call political economy. So let's start with the economy. Well, I mean, I have a prognosis here which is not novel to anybody, which is that uh, the so-called efforts at major recovery seem to have stalled out and failed. I mean, the first thing to note about all of this <clears throat> is this is a market in which if you stand still, you fall behind. Population in the United States is still increasing. If you have a labor force which is no bigger next year than it was last year, you're going to increase either the number of people who have given up and dropped out of the workforce, or on the alternative, you're going to have a higher rate of unemployment. And we are basically treading water in this particular market, and I think for most people that tends to be the dominant indicator of what's going wrong. But it's not the only indicator. You look, for example, at the stock market, and what you see is it, too, is treading water. It is now around 10,000, a little bit above that. The high was a little bit above 14,000. That was already over three years ago. Um, clearly, what it indicates is that the capital values in the United States have not increased commensurate um, with what you would hope to be a normal level of growth. Uh, third is if you try to look forward to the prospects that's going on, essentially we will see a systematic shift from production to compliance as the kind of general political ethic of our time. One of the more frightening features about the employment numbers <clears throat> is that all of the increase seems to be on the government side. Almost none of it seems to be on the private sector side, which means that since much of the private sector and development that we see in, in, in labor markets is an effort to beef up your compliance, the number of productive workers in the United States, as opposed to a number of their political overseers, is going down, which um, augurs very badly for the sort of long-term growth and production in the United States. Uh, regulation has two costs. One of the direct costs of administration from the government side and compliance from the private industry side. But in addition to that, it has huge incentive effects in terms of the way in which people look at risk in various kinds of ventures. If you know that the upside is going to be captured um, by government taxes and regulation and that if you do something wrong, there may be a criminal penalty or a serious fine associated with it, it will leave people to pull back their horns. So what we are seeing in the United States today is no ambition. What you see is mergers that result in consolidations and consolidations that result in shutdown of various facilities. The uh, recent acquisition by Pfizer of, I think it was Wyeth, and then the decision to shut down the new London plant, which they put up just before Kilo, in order to consolidate their work at the Groton plant, is a classic illustration of how two companies come together and one research facility disappears. So, I mean, if you want to kind of ask yourself what the overall picture is, there is, I think, really no bright light in this particular horizon, and there won't be any until there's a fundamental change, I think, in political orientation. Well, that's a cheerful opening. Well, let me challenge it, um, particularly the last part. Uh, I, I certainly – there's no disputing the malaise in the labor market, and, and why that is is presumably related to your other points about regulation. Certainly, this isn't an economy where employers are eager to take on new costs with unexpected um, – with certain costs and unex, uncertain benefits. Uh, people are very – employers are very worried about – consumer behavior in the future. They're very worried about the tax burden. They're very worried about the regulatory burden. But the question I want to ask is this. Is there any evidence that the regulatory burden and this compliance issue that you raise is any different than anything that's changed over the last 30 or 40 years? We've seen a steady increase, it seems to me, of government's role in productive decision-making, uh, some of it well-intentioned, some of it of course, not well-intentioned, designed to benefit certain powerful groups at the expense of others. 
but often sold with the idea that it's good for the environment or good for safety or good for uh, financial security, uh, good for honesty in the case of the one that's that I think of often, which is Sarbanes-Oxley. But how, how the the business world typically responds to these uh, these increases in regulation in a very prudent and wise ways. They often specialize. Firms get created that are really good at compliance. Um, resources do get wasted often in that effort, but it's a speed bump. It's not a barrier to growth and innovation and risk-taking. So I wonder if some of your pessimism is really a short-run pessimism that's due to the overall state of the economy as opposed to what you seem to suggest is a sea change. Well, um, I think it's a long-term I think it's a long-term issue, and the explanation is this. This is about the fourth major run of regulation that we've had in the United States in the last four years, 40 years, or 100 years, rather. Um, The first of those was the Progressive Era stuff in 1914, no big deal, perhaps. Uh, Then you get the New Deal stuff, then you get the stuff of the Johnson-Nixon period, and now you're getting this period. What happens is the marginal cost of additional regulation start to increase very rapidly, and the marginal benefits... of getting this stuff out of the system start, I think, in effect to become very small. So what's happened is it's kind of like falling off a cliff. You go down slowly, and then you start to go off. And the level of regulation at a detailed specificity and complication is far beyond anything that we've seen before. I mean, the health care bill is over 2,000, close to 3,000 pages. That doesn't capture the difficulties of it because there are probably three or 400 mandates for regulation about which nobody knows anything. Well, they haven't been, they haven't really, the laws have been written, right? <clears throat> well, it keeps on going in in short phases, but right now, for example, they're just huge regulatory fights and trying to figure out what is the definition of this elusive term known as a medical loss ratio on the question of just what percentage of your fees in a business can be administrative, quote-unquote, before you start having to give rebates to customers, even when it turns out you're losing money. Um, There's never been anything like that in the earlier kinds of bills. If anything, if you wanted to look at something like Medicare, the problem with that was that you had a formula which made doctors extraordinarily rich and made everybody else relatively poor. But these are basically statutes which are put into effect, will be confiscatory in their nature, and it will be exceedingly difficult to unravel or unhinge them by virtue of counterjudicial action. Same thing is true with respect to the Dodd-Frank bill. I've been working on some portion of it this morning, and you read 10 pages in the 25 legislative mandates that require regulations that nobody can understand as to what they mean. This is the financial reform, <coughs> so-called the financial, financial reform, reform act. Bill. So I think what you really have to do is to say, look, after you absorb three, can you absorb four, is a different question from if you have none, can you absorb one? And as far as I can see, uh, these things have really had very sharp effects in two ways. There is the kind of general malaise stuff which is going out there, which is, I would say, A, the extension of the unemployment benefits to 99 weeks, which I think, as Bob Barrow wrote this morning in the Wall Street Journal, um, surely has done a great deal to change the composition of the unemployed pool. What you do is you get a longer median age in which people remain unemployed or time, and then in addition you get a large number of outliers who are out there for a very, very long time indeed, so that the whole curve kind of shifts to the right. And in addition, you have sorts of things like the taxes where if you are gambling that there's going to be some kind of major reform between now and 2011, uh, you don't even know whether or not it's going to be something which is going to increase the level of progressivity or do something to tamp it down. We really do not have any clear signal on that. So those are the two kind of large things which are hanging over this economy. But it's more than that. This is a death of a thousand cuts. What you do is you have in virtually every industry of which I work, and I work in a lot of them one way or another, there is not a single movement towards deregulation. And, in effect, the kinds of regulations that you see now are more comprehensive. The regulators are more skillful and more thorough in what it is done. So you could take uh, the FDA. It's, it basically is ratcheting up every kind of restrictions that it imposes. Start talking about the enforcement of the Civil Rights Acts through the EOC. These guys are ramping up their enforcement as well, even without legislative changes. Look what's happening in various labor markets, and all you could find are sort of low-level administrative concessions in favor of organized labor. One was reported in the Wall Street this morning 
journal about the proxy rules in the SEC for allowing dissidents to get their slates on, which, of course, is a bargaining chip, which means that you get concessions for unions in an effort to keep the slate off, and so on down the line that it goes. So I think, in effect, that what's happened is you really are seeing a, a bigger change than, than you make it out to be. We know, for example, that the percentage of revenues, direct revenues, devoted to the federal government is moving up by, or, or taxes in general, is moving up by 3 or 4% which is a huge shift from, say, about 20 or 21 on the one hand to 24 or 25 on the other. But it's worse than that because the money is being spent in completely counterproductive ways. So I think, in effect, that this double whammy will be likely to put us into one of these kind of Japanese um, sorts of long-term stagflation in which nothing much is going to happen. Nobody is crazy enough to regulate to the point where people are out on the streets starving in droves, but they all think that somehow or other the incremental effect of their little old regulation for these nice kinds of people is not going to have that much of an effect. But sector by sector, you just see the same thing going on. I can't think of any one of these bills, a section which begins, section XYZ repealed. You just don't see that anymore. So you're just piling this stuff up, and I think we really have gotten to the point where the decline is very, very steep. Well, again, uh, would you have said anything differently 10 years ago? Um, yes, I would have. Why? <clears throat> well, for one thing, you had the Bush tax cuts. You know, they increased revenue very substantially, <clears throat> but they couldn't keep pace with the spending. But I would have thought, you know, going through, say, from 1990 to about 2000, uh, there was moderate amelioration. There was sensible tariff reform through the Clinton periods, unlike the Obama effort, through all sorts of covert mechanisms to shut back on free trade overseas, Colombia and Panama being the most notable illustration. Uh, there had been a series of tax cuts in the Reagan period. Um, they, 2001, you get them again. So I would have said that the, the, the situation was basically in political equilibrium. Something's bad, something's good. Um, until we get an election in 2010, which radically changes Congress, everything in the last two years has been in one direction, bad. Um, <clears throat> and much of the Bush legislation was bad as well. I mean, Sarbanes-Oxley is something you mentioned earlier on, and that's exactly the kind of thing which makes it very difficult for companies that are small to go public because of all the onerous requirements. So what happens is they tend to get bought out by larger companies in order to avoid those costs. The net effect of that is you get old, traditional, settled management running new, vibrant corporations, and they don't grow or behave in the same way. What you really want is not Google being folded into Microsoft, as it were, in the year 2000. You want it coming up as an independent company. And the next Google would be bought by the current Google, and its impact will be sharply diminished by virtue of the fact that people will not be taking these ventures public in the way in which they used to do at anything like the frequency that used to be done. And so it's just one of many things. I mean, to give you another indication, um, the number of foreign immigrants coming into the United States at the high-level positions is sharply down. The quotas are not filled. And what's happening is they, people find it easier to stay at home than to come here. And so the Microsofts and the Googles of this world will build their plants in India instead of trying to bring Indian engineers to the United States. The kind of jingoism that you see on these issues turns out to have very bad effects in both the long and the short term. So what happens is it's the intensity of the regulation. It's the fact that all the macro indicators are being very badly handled in one sense or another. And in effect that all of the sector stuff is, again, universally in the wrong direction. So what you're doing is you're running things, everything, okay, in exactly the wrong kind of way. And you've got to be very careful about that um, in terms of the way in which these kinds of businesses are going to be run. There really is absolutely nothing that I see on the horizon which indicates a change in heart. And, you know, take the Republican Party. Um, you know, when they oppose the health care bill, that's fine. When they compose it on the grounds that we have to keep Medicare strong, what they're doing, in effect, is showing their great allegiance to the dominant huge transfer payments over the new generation of huge transfer payments. But there's nobody who's prepared to say that, look, these things are not sustainable. I'll give you but one illustration of it. When they did their annual trustees report in 2010, what they did is they said, look, the health care bill has extended the solvency of Medicare by about 11 or 12 years. And then the chief actuary actually wrote a separate report at the end of this document in which he says this is all a crock. 
Because what happens is I'm required to price these things on the assumption that physicians' fees are going down 30% and that Congress will never restore them, when for the last 11 years or so when this has been done, they've always been restored. Do the correct numbers, and of course the day of reckoning comes closer rather right. than further. So what you do is you almost have a kind of a built-in deception in the legislation designed to allay people to what's happening. You pass all the benefits with great triumph, and then in effect all the costs come sneaking back in with much less publicity. So I am really quite, quite pessimistic, and when I start seeing what passes for general economics in the world at large, the only thing I start to do is to get more pessimistic still. I think, in effect, that what has happened is that the macroeconomic wisdom that you could control all of this stuff by interest rates or control all of this stuff by stimulus packages simply ignores the fundamental chaos in the regulatory system, which to my mind is far more important. Well, let me um, stick with the regulation for a minute. Uh, the other view, not yours, not mine either, but that's, that's neither here nor there yet. Uh, the other view is, is the exact opposite. The other view says the reason we're in this mess is we had a 25-year period of deregulation. We had a trust in the marketplace and all of the things you're complaining about, Richard, those are just – necessary palliative, palliatives to fix the excesses of the market. We've got – we had a financial sector that blew up, so we have to have this reform. We had a fraud and all kinds of uh, shenanigans, and that's why we needed Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, they could go down the line, I'm sure, in, in other areas, but those are the two that I think are the most interesting and the most important, at least for this conversation so far. Uh, those are necessary to – redress the the balance of power between government and the market, and um, you want to go back to the good old days. They weren't so good. No, I mean, look, I, I do want to go back not to the good old days, because remember, before Sarbanes-Oxley, much of the conduct which is now condemned by Sarbanes-Oxley, in fact, was already criminal, and the people themselves were punished with the action. But you have to keep this in perspective. You've got yourself, you know, 2,000 listed companies on one or another exchanges, and four of them start to blow up with various kinds of frauds, one kind or another. Let's just assume, which is false, that all of those losses were attributable to private misconduct and none of it to other forms of government regulation. The question you then immediately have to ask is, why do you want to put onerous reporting and notice requirements on the boards of directors of the other 1,996 companies which have done nothing wrong at all? Um, so that the real question here is not whether or not you regulate or don't regulate an economy. Nobody who believes in laissez-faire thinks that fraud is something that ought to be subsidized or even condoned. The question is whether or not prophylactic relief in the ex-ante state of the world is better than ex-post punishment with respect to the wrongdoers. There is absolutely no sort of automatic per se rule in that regard. You know, the 1934 Securities and Exchange Act had all sorts of disclosure statements, most of which turn out to be relatively useless, which were in the antecedent stage. But what's happened is they've simply gone overboard with respect to the kind of ratio in question. And you also never ask with respect to these things, the extent to which you see sorts of shenanigans, how many of those are created by various kinds of government programs which make it possible for you to engage in various kinds of trades which would not otherwise have taken place. So, for example, if you want to figure out what's the source of the meltdown with respect to the financial markets, it's really a very complicated question. But one of the things that one has to do is never neglect the role of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in terms of the way in which they bought mortgages that should not be issued. And in effect, what they did is they issued mortgages which should not have been issued either. Now, how do private firms behave when faced with a series of incentives? Well, the answer is they respond rationally, even if it's suboptimal. And how does that happen? Well, the government announces you sell paper to various kinds of individuals who are not creditworthy, and we will buy it, buy it from you. Well, at that particular point, if you know you could sell it at face value, even though the paper is worth far less, the rational guy would say, hey, I'm going to sell this stuff and let the government worry about it. So that you cannot have a set of rational market actors if, in fact, government guarantees insulates them from the downsides associated with their costs. And yet, when it starts coming to the financial situation with respect to all of these mortgages and mortgage-backed securities, that initial decision by Freddie and Fannie seems to be ignored, even though it ignites everything that goes on. Take another reform which is the idea that you have to run to a mark-to-market system in order to explain to your customers exactly what the values are. 
This works fine when you have publicly traded shares um, where the ready values are there because under those kinds of thick markets, whether you sell because of necessity on the one hand or opportunity on the other, you get the same market price. But in a world in which these concoctions that you create are very difficult to value, what mark-to-market does essentially is to force a run on the bank. Nobody knows exactly what these things are worth. The government gives you a very conservative markdown on it. You have to sell, but nobody will buy under these circumstances because everybody knows that once this guy is pegged to a particular sales price, a bunch of other companies are going to have to mark-to-market and to unload. So why buy now when you could buy later? And so essentially what happens is that the whole market starts to run down under a system in which you're demanding the kind of precision which can't take place. And if you had something other than compulsory sales under these circumstances to allow some of these banks, which are cash flow positive, to wait out the storm, you may have never had these kinds of difficulties whatsoever. So I would never buy into a narrative which says that if you're trying to figure out in this very complicated world how things start to operate, um, whether or not you've got difficulties. That's the first point. Second point is much of these regulations are stopping problems which simply do not exist. I mean, I've done some work, for example, on the Durban Amendment and involved as a consultant on this particular issue right now. Now, I mean, there's no crisis with respect to credit cards and debit cards. I mean, these are expanding markets. The most rapid expansion in the debit is in the debit card market, which has none of the difficulties that are associated with credit cards because you don't have to worry about the bankruptcy and unforeclosed risk, you know, uninsured risk and all the rest of that stuff. And so Dick Durbin speaks to somebody who happens to be probably Charlie Walgreen, I'm not sure, but probably him. He says, gee, I pay a lot of money in interchange fees. Why don't you just cut them out? That's a great way to run a two-side market, is you have a market system which essentially says, in a market where the customers and the consumers need the banks and the merchants and the merchants need the bank and the consumers, if the market allocates the cost on one side, uh, what we're going to do is shift 98% of that cost back on the other side, or 95% of that cost. Nobody knows what the final number will be right now. There's no problem to fix. And yet what happens is you create a system in which you now have very sharp rate regulation. To make it worse, some banks are under this system and will have to forfeit perhaps as much as 85 or 95% of their revenue. Other banks that under $10 billion are out from under it. Of course, government guys are out from under it as well. Credit card companies are out from under this particular regulation as well. Single unitary payers like uh, American Express, which functions as its own bank, they're out from it. So you're getting crazy quilt regulation, which will wreck a market, in my judgment, in which there's been no demonstrable form of market failure whatsoever. I mean, the definition of a market failure these particular days is when you have a commodity for which somebody must pay a positive price, which is less than the benefit he receives for the services in question. And if that's the definition of a market failure, every market fails. Yeah, well. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't agree with this particular narrative. I, I don't want to sound reasonable under these circumstances because I think that the sort of the responses to admitted failures has been usually wildly over-prophylactic. And then there are all sorts of things which aren't failures which get powerful responses to. To give you but another illustration, the height of the financial crisis, we passed the Wellstone stuff, which essentially requires in health care plans about parity for all sorts of mental illnesses, which from an insurance point of view is an extremely difficult thing to carry out. Why in the midst of a financial reform would you want to add a health care mandate of that sort into a system which is going to create huge compliance costs and continue to drive people out of the voluntary market? I mean, that's just another illustration of why it is that once you get an opportunity to do this stuff, an astute person in Congress could hold up an entire piece of legislation in order to get some preferred bill through, because bundling, in effect, allows you to say, hey, you got a surplus of 10000 out of this particular bill. Put my bill in, you get it through, even at a surplus of 7000 and I get the things that I want as well. And that kind of holdup is an enormously powerful tool which allows all sorts of unrelated regulations to be put together into a single package, some of which may do a modicum of good, but others which are unrelated and are unambiguously harmful. Well, let's talk about the FDA for a minute. Uh, My you, favorite agency. Yeah, and you mentioned in passing. I know we've talked a little bit about it in the past. Uh, I find it fascinating that people who are on the side – well, let me say it differently. I find it fascinating that there are two extreme views of the FDA – one is, and they're not compatible. One view, yeah, that's for sure. one view is uh, they're so cautious 
that they withhold, and as a result of their caution, they they deter uh, new drugs from coming to market that, that would be useful. And this view has been espoused by uh, Sam Peltzman most uh, yeah. originally and my, my colleague here, George Mason, Alex Tabarrok, yeah. uh, and Dan Klein have written about it. And and yet the alternative view, which is held by people with a different ideology, the alternative view is these agent this agency, the FDA, is a pawn of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, they do whatever they the bidding of the agency. Uh, they are uh, only interested in the pharmaceutical industry's profits, and what we need is a more vigilant FDA. Now those both those views can't be right. Any mm-hmm. thoughts? Uh, on how one might adjudicate between those two those two claims about the behavior of this agency. Well, look, I mean, first of all, the political economy of the agency under the standard theories is much more complicated than many people will commonly suppose. And the explanation is this. Any company who has a drug which is out in the marketplace with FDA approval is now in favor of rather strict restrictions on the introduction of substitute products by rival manufacturers that might displace it from its market share. So there is, on the industry side, no unambiguous desire to make sure that the regulations are going to be let down. What everybody's trying to do is to get to some kind of a differential advantage whereby a large and experienced company which knows the ropes can get its products through a year or six months or 18 months faster than somebody which turns out to be less skillful. So the industry people are all over on this particular matter. Um, and that's because they have anti-competitive benefits that they can have once it is that the ex- because essentially the FDA failure to approve a competitive drugs acts as a barrier to entry with inside the marketplace. So at that particular point, you would expect to see industry behavior being very inconsistent, and you would never see any strong drive towards sort of abolishing the, the FDA or seriously listening its functions. They benefit too much from it. You look to small entrepreneurs who are either brave enough or foolish enough to try to take a single product and ram it through the FDA, they're going to be much more focused on trying to shorten the time period in question Um, because they don't have any drug in the market which can be protected from new rivals, whereas a company like Merck or like Pfizer or Upjohn, any one of the large companies, they always have a portfolio of drugs in there which create a very different situation. So that's the first point. Uh, The second point is if you're trying to figure out... uh, whether or not the pharmaceutical industry dominates this particular um, agency, the answer to that question has to be wrong because there are too many other groups out there who have very large says in the way in which this thing operates. I mean, for example, take Congress and its oversight with respect to the FDA. I mean, I've been involved in proceedings when John Dingell would call a hearing to examine FDA people and everybody inside the agency would start to quake because of the fear that something would go wrong. And so what the FDA does is it understands that if it lets a drug on the market, say Vioxx, which turns out to have some arguable adverse effects, it's going to be absolutely hammered in the political region. But on the other hand, if it keeps something like Vioxx off the market and people simply suffer pain, which cannot be attributable to a drug that the FDA has approved, they're going to escape some kinds of dangers. So that's a built-in incentive structure for them to be extraordinarily cautious in order to avoid retribution from powerful political people who make hay, essentially, out of the kind of populist attack with respect to the agency. The third thing about it is it's very complicated in this agency because of the interactions that take place between what the FDA lets on the market and proves and, in effect, the way in which these drugs are used once they get out there. One pretty good sign uh, that they are very slow on the uptake is the huge emergence of a what they call the off-label drug market, which has taken place in the United States, particularly with respect to cancer drugs. Uh, just to back up for a minute, when the FDA approves a drug for use, it doesn't say, well, here you've got yourself some kind of pill like um, Avastin. Just go right ahead and use the darn thing in any way you want. What it does is it approves it for certain conditions and certain dosages after very detailed clinical tests. Once the thing gets out in the market, the FDA cannot regulate the practice of medicine under the enabling statute. And so the docs look at the thing and they say, look, I got a tumor which bears no relationship to colon. It's a breast cancer tumor or something else or a lung tumor. I'm going to try it anyhow. Talk to the patients. Send it back to one of these organizations that actually keeps a running tab on adverse reactions like the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. 
Um, and you start seeing it. So 80, 85, 90% of the uses of some drugs are, in fact, off-label. And they certainly have adverse events, effects on these things, but you don't see any decline with respect to the use. So what do you want to say about an agency which, in effect, is so slow on the uptake that 90% of the things that it approves are used for things for which the approvals are not given, and the accumulated information, which is fairly exhaustively monitored in the private literature, in effect does not leave any reputable physicians to back off their particular use. The only conclusion I can draw from that is that they are too slow on the uptake with respect to these stuff, and that nobody wants to bear the cost of a heavy set of clinical trials to get an off-label use on use because it's just not worth it in terms of the way in which this thing is sold. I think there's basically been only one drug, um, which was... um, essentially taken back the authorized use for an unused label, and it was Thalmid, if I, book, if I remember correctly, which is a drug like, remember, thalidomide? This is now on the market, and it's basically was first used for leprosy, and now it's used to deal with multiple myeloma, which is a peculiarly deadly um, condition, and the drug was approved for second use in that particular condition by a set of trials. Otherwise, it goes in a very different kind of fashion. And then last, I mean, you could just sort of count the number of what they call new molecular entities, that is, drugs of a different class that get approved each year. And as the waiting periods get longer, the expenses for approval start to get higher. The number of drugs that bash out or fall out after the first stage of clinical trials, they're called phase two or phase three trials, when you're trying to ones larger numbers, those numbers that back out tend to be higher, so that you're talking about a billion-plus dollars today half of which is essentially the interest on invested capital in the early stages of the process in order to get some drugs through. These numbers have been moving up consistently over the time. As far as the industry being a pawn of the FDA or the FDA being a pawn of the industry, I guess is the way it's put, there's something known as PDUFA, the Physician Prescription Drug User Fee Act, in which companies with high-valued products and pay the FDA in order to expedite the review. And Tom Phillipson has done a reasonably careful study on this and indicates that there's no real change in the approval rates that come through PDUFA and no real change in the recall rates of drugs that have been approved by PDUFA, notwithstanding the fact that the stuff has gone faster. And you know, many very sort of outspoken critics regard PDUFA as a form of original sin, but the evidence of that is simply not there in the record. Um, what you see is... More money gets things on the market faster, and the great loss that you have from the FDA is that delays in therapies that are widely available in Europe or in Canada being kept off out of vigilance by the FDA in the United States, that translates into so many deaths per year for the want of treatment happening. So this is not something I think that one can say is sort of an open question. And and the last point that I'll just mention is that right now there's a, a ruinous set of developments stemming from the Supreme Court in which the FDA, which is on the right side of this issue, cannot issue a warning which will serve it defense will serve drug companies if they get sued for product liability. Basically, no product liability suit today is brought because the product has been misfabricated. They're all brought on the grounds that the warnings are not sufficient. And no matter what you tell the FDA, and no matter what you put on the label, there's always somebody who can say, it should have been a little clearer, a little larger, a little longer, and a little stronger, and then this drug would have never been used, and my client would not have suffered these particular injuries. These cases probably increase the, as it were, the cost of marketing drugs a thousandfold over their actual side, side effects, given the huge ways in which the tort law makes every indulgence to allow a plaintiff to win. And yet there's absolutely nothing that the Supreme Court was willing to do to shut this thing off at the gate by announcing that if you meet with the FDA standards, uh, then you're fine. And if you don't meet with them, you're in really bad trouble, which I think is the appropriate rule. If you want to market mass products, either you have bright-line rules with respect to whether or not they're regarded as safe and effective, or you get real kinds of chaos. So this is a case in which the prophylactic rule a particular warning surely beats ad hoc adjudication where you put out an odd warning on a product and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose and you never know whether it's which judge you're before, which jury, which state, or, or whatever. So I, I don't think that this is actually that close a case. I, I think that the people who want to strengthen the, S, the FDA are generally mistaken in what they are looking for 
in any large and complicated situation, you're always going to have some share of adverse events, and the mere fact that you have one doesn't mean that you ought to take the extraordinary steps in order to reduce that number to zero, which can only be achieved if you basically shut down the entire new drug apparatus in the United States. Let's talk for a minute about the tort issue um, and the side effects, which, you know, as an economist, my first thought is there's no such thing as a safe drug. In particular, I don't want safe drugs. I don't want drugs with no side effects. They're not going to be very effective. They're not going to be very strong. And they're not going to help many people. One of the things that fascinates us uh, who are not lawyers is how this system emerged and how little control there is of any kind uh, from the top down. Uh, we're, we sort of – we have a tort system. We have a um, – a set of consequences for behavior that is not malfeasance or at least easily defined as malfeasance. You, sometimes it's just bad luck, and as you point out, it's often – depends on which judge you're in front of and which jury you're in, what state you're in, the maybe the um, – how teary-eyed the family of the person with the bad luck to have the side effects are. How might that system uh, be improved? It is not – other than the occasional – very, very broad-based idea of, of tort reform, it doesn't make it into the political debate. There's no – it just kind of rumbles along, and, and some would say, well, you know, that's what we get. It must be okay. But people often point out that, well, I don't know. The legislators who pass the underlying legislations that allows these kind of systems to emerge, they're lawyers. Maybe that's not the best system. Uh, what might we do to make that better, if there is anything? Maybe there's well, nothing. Well, I mean, look, in terms of changing the composition of the Congress, that's something which, if you do, will affect not only drugs, but everything else under the face of the sun. And I don't think that's a, a short-term argument. But with the drug case, it was a kind of an interesting history. Um, under the Bush administration, a fairly aggressive FDA, Dan Troy was its general counsel at the time. Um, now he works, I think it's for one of the major companies. I think it's Astrogenica, but I don't want to swear on that. Um, you know, he comes forward with a preamble to the statute, which announces the tough rule, which is if the FDA approves a particular warning for a particular product, uh, you cannot attack it in court as being inadequate. And in a case called Wyeth and Levine, uh, the United States Supreme Court said this was just very sloppy as a matter of administrative procedure, so we will not give it any weight and will therefore strike it down. And as a matter of standard procedural law, they were certainly closer to the truth. Uh, than the false side. So I don't want to criticize them on that. But then there's the question, if you didn't have the regulation, and you're just trying to look at the statute, how would you read preemption if, in fact, there's nothing in the statute which addresses the question as to whether or not compliance with a federal warning should block a court action? And my own view about that is general principles usually say that if you have a comprehensive system of regulation which has not fallen asleep at the switch, as this one surely has not. If anything, they tend to over-regulate on the warnings in many of these cases. What you do is you say that if you can market a drug with this warning, it's an implicit statement that you don't have to put a stricter warning on this particular product. And so, therefore, you should say that the federal regulation has occupied the particular field in question. And having occupied the field, it's not for a bunch of different state courts and state juries to go off in their own direction and, in effect, to impose liability. Because what's happened is the liability that's being imposed bears almost no relationship to anything that the drug company has done. What is characteristic of all the modern suits is that you have somebody in the middle who has done something which is so egregious that everybody conceives this to be previous forms of malpractice, and yet they tend out to be the second rather than the first defendant. So in Wyeth and Levine, the case that I referred to, you had a situation with a drug called Phenergan, and this has been on the market since about 1955. And it's a drug which is immensely useful for getting rid of certain kinds of acute pains, but could be administered in two ways. One of them is you could use a low-level drip, which is a riskless procedure, which has modest effects. And then if you have really intractable cases, you can switch to an injection mechanism in which you put this stuff into the vein. Uh, and the warnings on the package made it perfectly clear, A, you don't do this for any modest condition, and B, if you do do it, you have to be exceedingly careful, because otherwise paralysis or amputation of a limb will result, this amputation actually, um, so that if you inject it into an artery, you're in deep trouble. 
if you inject it too fast or too much, you're in deep trouble. And it turned out in Wyatt, there was a physician's assistant up in uh, the state of Vermont, and she hit an artery, and she kept pushing the stuff in, even though there was real resistance, because arterial flow is very high, and the blood is very red. And she did it twice, twice as much and twice as fast, and the patient was screaming through the whole procedure, and sure enough, the limb was lost. She was a guitarist. And now what you do is you sue Wyeth, rather than suing the doctor. Well, you don't do it that way. You sue both. But what happens is the doctor settles, and then they testify against the drug company for the inadequate warning. So this is the Willie Sutton. Um, you go where the money is. Yeah, you go where the money is. So, again, stepping back for this particular issue to the more general issue, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like a good way to run a uh, uh, a market with where you want innovation and you want to encourage people no, to take crazy. risks. I mean, this is a drug that's out there for 55 years. And so what happens is now the FDA responds to the tort suit by putting a black box warning, which reduces the use of this particular stuff, um, which is very harmful. Now, with Fenergan, you're not going to see this happen very often because it's not in anybody's interest to maim people in this particular fashion. But with a drug like Prozac, where in effect it is very potentially dangerous even when properly administered, the inability to have a safe warning on a Prozac label means that the use of this drug will sharply drop. And there are already some preliminary statistics, not fully validated, but I suspect in the fullness of time they will be, which suggests that with the black box warning, uh, the number of applications of Prozac goes down because docs now feel medical, fear medical malpractice. And with the decline in the use of the drug, the increase in teenage uh, suicides uh, will be as a matter of course, so that what you end up is killing people because what you're willing to do is to falsely attributable, in many cases, falsely attribute some of the particular harms to the drug that's being used um, as opposed to the underlying condition. And then having made that false attribution, uh, the drug becomes far more costly. So what, in fact, is reducing the risk of harm is treated through the tort system as though it's increasing the risk of harm. And if you get the wrong sign on the variable, you're obviously going to go in the wrong way. This is just one of many kinds of things that has happened. And you can see the difference on this issue between the Bush administration, which fought to block these things, and the, and the uh, Obama administration, who was actually under Elena Kagan, I think, in the Solicitor General's office, wrote a very strong brief saying the last thing we want to do is to preempt uh, through uh, the FDA statutes any private rights of action under state law. There's a very close connection between the trial bar and the Democratic Party. Um, and the difference in results between the two administrations on this issue is as bright and as clear for anybody to see. So what, I think one has to be aware of this. So what's a classical liberal to do? Earlier on in our conversation, you talked about mm-hmm. – we were talking about Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, you said there's existing you know, statutes on the book. Um, I, like you, I think I'm a big fan of ex post punishment as a deterrent rather than – uh, ex-ante uh, monitoring and compliance. But if the ex-post punishment is um, capricious and prone to emotional manipulation of juries at the in states that are friendly to those kind of cases, um, what might we do to make that legal system more effective? More yeah. and look, I think in this particular case, there is a solution if you could keep it, which is there is, with respect to medical devices, a preemption provision, which was held uh, quite recently to block these private tort suits. The political reaction is to remove preemption from medical devices rather than to add it for medical drugs, where the whole issue is a matter of implication. And you have to be able to persuade people um, that, you know, in the end, the pot of gold for one is not going to be sufficient given the long-term systematic consequences. With all classical liberal theories, what you have to do is to think of a particular lawsuit or a direct regulation not only in terms of the wealth transfers that it creates between the immediate parties, but also ask yourself, when you take into account third-party effects, whether or not these are likely to be positive or negative. So, for example, if you allow somebody to sue for an ordinary form of aggression, the third-party effects are all positive. Um, If you can stop aggression, then the individuals who were not hit but did business with the parties who were maimed will, in fact, be better off as well, even though they don't bring any kind of suit. So that what happens is the suit between A and B generally increases the high level of confidence that you have in a legal system, which has taken its stand against violence. 
But if, on the other hand, you allow aid to sue B because of competitive losses in a competitive market, now, in effect, the better competitor will no longer be able to supply its benefits to its customers, and the third-party effects all turn negative. Right? And so when you sort of look at litigation, what you must always ask is not only how it affects the parties, but how it affects the long-term incentive structures in which everybody operates. And the 19th century judges, who didn't have these formalities down well, seem to do a pretty good job of it. The modern judges um, are much more inclined to sort of be outraged at conduct that they don't understand, rather than trying to figure out how this thing ought to be looked at in a more comprehensive framework. So let me put it to you in, in another pessimistic way, since that seems to be my mood this morning, which is a system of checks and balance is, is wonderful if it turns out that you have at least one sane actor in the system who will block the kind of legislation. The whole assumption of checks and balances is that uh, legislation is basically a mistake until it's proven to be beneficial, <laughs> and if you have multiple barricades, it will make it harder to get things through, which is consistent with that original normative presumption. But if every branch of government has now switched over to the point where they think more regulation means higher social welfare, then in effect what happens is the system starts to break down because there's none of the checks actually take hold. And what's happened in the United States today, in my judgment, particularly with the unified government that we have, both houses under democratic control with a highly liberal democratic president, is that the political stuff is essentially now all in the hands of the same people so that you can't stop a health care bill, you can't stop a finance reform bill like Dodd-Frank or something of the sort. And then when you get to the judiciary, the long-term attitude has been, you know, we don't know anything about this stuff, so we're just going to take a back seat. And if Congress could come up with something that looks plausible, we're going to regard the whole statute as constitutional. Don't bother me with any close analysis as to why this thing is bad. So what you do is you get all relevant players in this particular system acquiescing in a state in which you march to larger regulations, which means that the only kind of feedback you could get is at the polls, and that's extremely difficult to do because, you know, look, let's go back to what you said earlier. Uh, you've got a general election. You've got people worried about jobs, right? And you've got people worried about taxes and people worried about mosques or one thing or another. How many of them are going to actually spend three seconds on Wyeth and Levine and the question of drug preemption? That's why it's, we're here, Richard. Right? That's, that's why, why we're, we're here. here. We're I mean, spreading what you try to do truth and wisdom. People, so that even if it doesn't affect the way in which the election goes, maybe somebody will actually, in Congress, be aware of what's going on and start to break that fundamental equation that in, this, in the area of state regulation, more is always going to be regarded as better. And so, you know, this gets you to the kind of rule of law issues that you're talking about. And it's very difficult because the entire modern apparatus, to some extent, imitates what the rule of law requires. Nobody who's in favor of passing these bills is going to say, we're not going to give you hearings, we're not going to have regulations, we're not going to have notice, we're not going to permit comment. They go through the whole apparatus. But it turns out what you're doing is using an apparatus in order to implement a bill which has no purpose in being passed in the first place. So it's all misplaced because you cannot challenge the fundamental assumptions behind the legislation during the notice and comment periods that are available to its implementation. And then when you get these regulations, the judges look at them and say, you know, we'll try to construe them. They're not being wretched or unreasonable, but we're not going to take it upon ourselves uh, to regard this whole thing um, as some kind of a giant mistake. And as you can see with respect to the health care bill, and you'll see it with respect to some portions of Dodd-Frank, um, there are now going to be more sustained efforts to challenge them judicially and the hope, I think, of many of the critics is, at this particular point, the, the real specter of massive dislocation that I tried to paint in the beginning of this talk is accurate enough that some of these judges will start to stand up and to take a look at this stuff and say, maybe we have to slow you down a little bit. So they may not strike something down, but they may delay its implementation until there's greater clarity in the rules or some assurance that they're not going to be confiscatory or something of the sort. We don't know at this particular point, which way it will play out. Because just as you've mentioned that there are two wildly different views on how we ought to think about the FDA, so it is that there are wildly discordant views on how we ought to think about the use of judicial review with respect to, broadly speaking, economic regulation. And people are all over the map on that particular issue. 
and we have a Supreme Court which is sort of 4-1-4, and who knows on any particular day what side of a particular issue Justice Kennedy will turn out to be. He's more conservative on these things than, say, Sandra Day O'Connor was, so that my sense is that the court, at least for its five-member majority, is, on average, a little bit more receptive to these things than they might have been even five years ago when Rehnquist and, and uh, O'Connor was still on the court. Uh, but, you know, 5-4, uh, four, with four very determined people on the liberal side, is not the kind of thing which gives you great confidence in your own predictive ability to see the way in which these institutions will uh, manifest themselves. So I think that we're in, to put it mildly, for a very high level of uncertainty with respect to the way in which all of these issues um, go, because the system is aware of the obvious procedural challenges in the name of the rule of law, but it doesn't understand that to the extent that you have highly indefinite property rights, which all of these statutes create, that no system of regulation is going to be able to limit the dangers associated with political discretion. And so you will start to see, you know, the kind of stagflation that we've had today. We continue to generate a modest level of technical improvement, which is a all to the plus, but the regulatory overhang and the judicial uncertainty in response to that overhang remains sufficiently powerful that you cannot jumpstart this economy. And it is just frightening to me when I start reading, you know, reasonably smart people, a little bit off point, I think, you know, like Paul Krugman and so forth, and Laura Tyson Saturday in the, or Sunday in the New York Times, announcing that the stimulus program has worked because we've managed to constrain the, unincreased, you know, the increase in employment to only 10% when it was supposed to be under 8%. Well, I just think it's wishful thinking. These are folks for whom it is not possible to falsify a prediction. Well, they're a little like us. You know, we, have to, we, have to, we, have, I, we have the same issues. I, I don't think, for me, the... Um State of macroeconomics is particularly unscientific. Um, well, I mean, I agree with all of that, but I mean, what happens is to rule it the other way. Suppose somebody went and adopted a set of market reforms, and what happened is the unemployment rate managed to go up two percent. Uh, how many people do you think would respond with the benevolent remark, "Gee, if we hadn't made these reforms, it would have gone up by four percent"? Yeah, I don't know. I bet we could find lots of examples where our friends said similar uh, things. I, I, you know, I'm hard pressed to to do that. I mean under these circumstances, because the, the big difference between my friends and their friends is I don't know what their theory is. I mean, well, they have a theory. The, the, they have the, a theory. It's the Keynesian theory of aggregate demand, and since since it didn't get better by very much, they just that just proves, of course, that we just didn't do enough of it. No, I mean, but let me know. This is what I think is wrong with that particular theory. It never tells you where it is that you're supposed to quit. You know, take something like unemployment benefits. If... You know, 52 weeks are better than 26 weeks, and 99 weeks are better than 52 weeks. Um, are we going to say 200 weeks are better than 99 weeks? There's nothing in their particular theory which explains why it is that negatives start to get larger and positives start to get smaller as you go further on. And at least when I try to do sort of government theories and so forth, what I'm always trying to do is to figure out where the, the, and there's an interior maximum. And I don't see that in this particular kind of theory, nor do I see any sense into how it is that they will actually recognize the situation and then be able to act on the recognition when you've decided, gee, we don't need these stimulus programs anymore. Um, is it really going to be possible to cut the unemployment benefit period back to 26 weeks after you raise it to 99 weeks? Is it really going to be possible to raise interest rates and instead of, you know, basically putting, injecting money into the system by buying various kinds of paper. Now what you're going to do is you're going to try to reduce the liquidity in the system by selling stuff off. I don't believe that the Fed knows when to do that or it's going to have sufficient control over the situation to be able to do it. And to my mind, any theory, and I think this is very true of the Keynesian-type approach, which doesn't have an interior maximum, is going to be wrong. So to compare it to, say, a very famous curve on the other side, the Laffer curve, the reason I like the Laffer curve is he doesn't tell you exactly what the optimal point of taxation is, and he doesn't prove certainly that the optimal point of taxation, that is to maximize tax revenues, maximizes social welfare, but there's obviously an interior solution. You raise taxes to a certain point, you increase revenues, you raise them beyond that point, you don't. 
And that's what you have to look for in a Keynesian theory. And I don't see that peak somewhere in the center of the distribution so that everything kind of runs off to extremes. And that's what I mean by, I think, being a bad theory. Um, I, don't, I don't know, and they don't tell me where it is I'm supposed to look. We've run interest rates down to zero. We've had a stimulus program which reports to be $800 billion. The results seem to be negative. And what we're told is, no, they really are positive and things would have been worse. Well, the reason why things are worse is that the stimulus can't offset the uncertainties associated with taxation and the immediate costs associated with regulation. But they don't want to put regulation into their models. I mean, they basically think that the only thing that matters is taxation on the one hand and money supply and interest rates and stimulus on the other. That's simply too narrow a view of the way in which an economy well. works. So they're wrong in terms of what they isolate, and they're wrong in the way in which they understand their isolated features. Um, I'm not nearly as tolerant on this particular point. I'm willing to fight all sorts of days as to whether or not the optimal tax rate is flat, slightly progressive, stops at 25%, goes up to 40%. I mean, I think on all those issues you can have a fight because at least everybody understands what pushes you first in one direction and then in the other direction. What you need to do in order to make the Keynesian theory work is to have a situation where the theorists can explain by using their own theoretical structure why it is we go this far and no further. That does not seem to be part of this. Well, the irony is is that I think the most useful part of Keynesianism uh, and the Keynesian model doesn't uh, lend itself to blackboards or equations, uh, and so therefore it doesn't get into the uh, the academic debate. And that is – That's the, the, what, the animal spirits exactly. and confidence issue? Yeah, and I although I've been a constant detractor of the view that um, – that consumer confidence is a key part of economic activity, and I think it is irrelevant in, the, in, in typically in normal times, and I think it's also true that it is a symptom, not a cause. It remains true that, that the, I think the biggest single problem we have in the economy today is anxiety on the part of investors, on the part of executives, on the part of employers. And we don't have a theory about what reduces anxiety. So, Well, I could give you something. Um, I think what's happened is everybody knows that going into a marketplace when you want to introduce a widget, you run the risk that widgets will not be demanded by your customers. But at this particular point, the risk of government behavior is such that you don't know if, in fact, there's a loan that's not repaid, whether you're going to be able to foreclose on your debtor in order to recover the cash in question, or whether somebody's going to pull a GM Chrysler stunt and leave you essentially without in the cold. That is, the unwillingness to respect the usual priority amongst financial instruments was not just a question of screwing up the transaction with GM and Chrysler. It essentially cast a pall over the market. And so what I would say is regulation that defines property rights and ensures their prompt and effective enforcement will create the kind of confidence you need in the system. But what have we had? If you want to look at one sector we haven't talked about thus far with real estate, every time you do it, there's somebody who wants to have some fancy program which will allow people to defer, you know, defer payments on conditions that the banks renegotiate. There's the so-called HAMP program on this. And it has been an abject failure. What happens is these things get renegotiated. The debtors then strategically decide not to pay their loan. They stay in the house as long as they can. And when the property is finally recovered, it suffered the real beat-up from the fact that it's been not protected by a person who has a long-term equity in the structure. So you know, that's just another illustration of a market which makes things scared. So you see banks pulling back on their loans. You see corporations with record amounts of cash. Uh, you also have a finance system which basically lends you money at very low rates, and then, in effect, the Fed will borrow money or the Treasury will borrow it at 3%. So, you know, you just take money out on the one side and put it back in on the other side. You get a 2% float for doing nothing. Um, I, I do think that there are real explanations for this and for the lot of confidence, but there is also absolutely no one who has any confidence in Congress. Its approval ratings are, what, 22% now? Well, that, that was going to be my final point. We'll, maybe we'll close with this and get your comment on it. Um, the, you mentioned earlier the potential for a Japanese malaise, so-called lost decade. Uh, Europe has got some challenges. Uh, its regulatory structure, it may not be sustainable. Certainly our entitlement structure is not sustainable. Yeah. But uh, there are elections coming, and 
you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We're, we're talking now in August of 2010, the end of the month. It could be that a modest change will occur. Uh, the party in power, will, re- which is the Democrats, will stay in power. Or it could be uh, that there will be a really dramatic change in not just the, so- the shape of Congress in the sense that the Republicans get a majority – but the type of people who get elected are going to have a very different perspective. Now, of course, once they get elected, they become uh, – they're in they office. They become acculturated. Yeah, they're, they're politicians. Uh, the odds of their uh, – that they'll sustain a philosophical opposition to what they claim to, to oppose is always uncertain. But um, I, it's striking to me, I mean shocking to me how much virulent – gut reaction there is to the kind of changes we're talking about. You, know, you and I, we haven't liked the way things have gone for a while, right? It's one thing mm-hmm. to talk about uh, deregulation, which you know people claim there was deregulation. Overall, the overall trend for the last 30 years to me, yeah, the last 40 years, is sure there are moments where things get repealed, but the overall trend of government's role in business and in, in Business decision-making and risk-taking has, has gotten to me much larger over the last 30 years. It's hard to quantify it. You can debate it. It's an interesting question. But to me, it's gotten larger. And you know, intellectually, ideologically, there aren't a lot of people who are alarmed by unseen consequences. And yet, in the American, body po- in the, in the American electorate today, there is a, a hostility to the growth of government that I have never seen in my lifetime. It dwarfs – what put Ronald Reagan into office, uh, a movement that had very little impact on the size of government, by the way. It slowed it down a little bit. It changed the second derivative. Yeah, exactly. It was pretty modest. Uh, there was lot, the rhetoric got more pleasing to me, but the, you know, the actual shape didn't change that much. Uh, and yet right now we're at a time where the, the electorate is making noises that are really radically different. Unfortunately, um, what happens is they know that they want less, and some of them therefore conclude that they want none. And it's very difficult to get people to understand, for example, you need to regulate a system of highways if you don't want to have congestion. And so the same people who don't want to have government regulation with respect to the price of wheat all of a sudden are opposed to tolls on freeways. You can't live in a society which is going to run that way. And so what one has to do is to try and sort of understand and explain to people why their fears are correct and then do exactly with respect to the you know, the Tea Party types, that you have to do with the Keynesian, which is to say, you know, zero regulation is not a viable situation. Zero taxation is show me why your intermediate points ought to be and what pushes you first in one direction or in the other. So in that sense, the classical liberal is indeed a moderate because he's trying to constantly go between those people who want all-pervasive government control over everything and people on the other side who are so disgusted with the specter of overcoming things that they may well cut back on government assumptions that are more, government functions that are more essential. But finding that sweet spot is, I think, the major challenge. And I agree with you in terms of the intensity of the feeling today. And it's not just on economic issues. I mean, we've had two huge cultural battles in the last month or two, which again have been extreme in their rhetoric on both sides. We've had the fight over Proposition 8 with respect to gay marriage in California. And we've had the proposition of the fight over the location of the mosque or, or, or Muslim um, building, which is going to be located somewhere well, near the, the and Twin I would Towers. Add, I would add and, immigration and, to you know, that. And, my God, um, you listen to this stuff and you say, why? What am I supposed to do? I don't want to side with anybody if, in fact, that's the way the rhetoric is going to go. Um, and, you know, I think those issues have symbolic, is- symbolic impacts, which you don't get when you're trying to figure out loss ratios and preemption statutes yeah, and so true. forth. So I think it's easier to explain to people why it is that the regulatory side has gone bad. Much more difficult in general, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, to work well in this sort of symbolic universe in which all of us have to live. Um, But it is a sign, in effect, that um, as you see a shrinking economy, people become much more bitter because the fights over losses are always uglier than fights over gains. And that's the, the kind of world that we've got ourselves into now. And it's kind of ironic because, you know, you had a presidential campaign in 2011 in which a combination and reaching out to the other side of the island thought to be one of the yeah. dominant themes. And it turns out it hasn't played out by that at all. I think there's probably been less cooperation and less consensus on these issues. And the tragedy in some of these cases is that there are times when both parties are deeply in error as, for example, on much of the stuff associated with the health care bill 
and less so, but still importantly, on some of the finance bills. On average, on the economic issues, the Republicans have done much better than the Democrats in the last several years. That has not always been the case. And, you know, as an academic, you don't want to have too strong a party affiliation. I try to have virtually none, because our job is to look at each item in the market basket separately. And yet, when you vote for political candidates, you always have to vote for bundles. You know, I may make my choice one way or another on the bundle, but I think in the issues, you have to talk about them separately and distinctly. That's why I always hold my nose when I vote, when I do that. Well, you have to do that. I mean, everybody's (laughs) going to do that regardless of affiliation. But, you know, just to sort of end up on this particular kind of discussion, um, what I really think is happening in in the simplest terms is that people who said about previous regulations, the sky did not fall down, were true. But they ignored the fact that the stuff was on average negative and offset by greater technological improvement. But I think that the balances have now shifted. I think the regulation hurts the technological improvement, and that what happens is its intrusions are far greater, so that I see a benefit-to-cost ratio, which was always negative, becoming steeply negative. And I think that's the kind of thing which sparks the sort of reaction um, that you start to see. And then, of course, the defenders of the system, they lash out. So Paul Krugman this morning in good form, he writes about just how terrible everybody in the Tea Party is when on the same page Ross Duhan who's a much more thoughtful commentator, said, hey, I went down there, and they weren't talking politics at all. They were trying to reclaim the American vision, right? I mean, so you get these radically different views of self. And I do think we have to try to reclaim the American vision of strong property rights, limited government, and individuals who, when they have good fortune, are sensible enough and sympathetic enough to reach out a helping hand to those who are less fortunate than themselves. But that's got to be done privately in order for it to be done well. Because it turns out that government benevolence, you cannot control it at the margin. A little bit everybody will support, and a lot of it people will be deeply opposed for, opposed to. And yet it turns out you cannot calibrate the political mechanism well enough so that you do just enough to keep the median voter happy without going overboard. And what we have to do now is to figure out how we pull back from excesses in so many dimensions that it's really hard to know exactly where we ought to begin. My guest today has been Richard Epstein. Richard, thanks as always for being part of EconTalk. It's always fun to be with you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.